Unipify podcast. Hello, welcome to the Unipify podcast on shaping a low carbon future. It's a leaders dialogue between Charles Zimon, who is CEO of CDPQ, Guy Comier, who is CEO of Desjardins, and Millie Gilbert, who is chair of the investment committee at the David Rockefeller Fund. This dialogue took place during the Unipify Regional Roundtable for North America as, as part of Finance Montreal's Sustainable Finance Summit. This dialogue takes place in English with short 30-second introductions from Guy and Charles in French. So if you don't speak French, please skip 30 seconds and the conversation will switch back to English. Thank you so much for listening. And now we'll hear from Neely. Hi. My name is Neely Gilbert, and many thanks to you all for joining us today for a conversation with two senior leaders in the climate, climate finance movement. Charles Zemont from CDPQ and Guy Comier of Desjardins. As we kick off today, it will be my pleasure to offer some brief introductory remarks, and then we'll move into a moderated panel discussion with these leaders. By way of background, I serve as investment committee chair of the David Rockefeller Fund, which is a member of the United Nations convened Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance. And in this role, I serve in the CEO and principals leadership group of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, which is chaired by Mark Carney, and as the chair of the advisory panel of the technical expert group, that advises GFANS in its efforts. Charles and Guy's organizations are both also members of this group. By way of additional background, the Glasgow Financial Alliance truly demonstrates the high level of commitment that the finance sector brings to the table in combating climate change. It brings together a number of other initiatives under one umbrella, including the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, which Charles and I both represent, the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, which Guy represents, the Net Zero Banking Alliance, Insurers Alliance, and Service Providers Alliance. So to become a member of GFANS, you join one of these other groups and are graduated into the broad umbrella. Remarkably, GFANS is now convening well over 250 finance institutions and around 100 trillion US dollars of capital globally in its reach. You know, many financial institutions today are motivated by our fiduciary duties in making high ambition net zero commitments. Speaking on behalf of asset owners, when it comes to managing our long-term risk-adjusted returns, we see climate change as a great risk, but we also see it as a source of potential opportunity. In terms of the risk, consider that conservative estimates suggest that unabated climate change will lead to global costs equivalent to losing at least 5% of global GDP each year. This represents trillions of dollars of wealth destruction for our beneficiaries, our clients, and for society as a whole. I'm joining you today from the United States, which faced $95 billion in damages in 2020 alone as a result of weather and climate disasters and $800 billion in the past decade. It's reported that one in three Americans has suffered a weather disaster just this past summer. In a moment, we'll hear more from our panelists about the perspective from Canada. 
But lastly, I would just add that the finance sector is motivated also by a forward-looking positive expectation about the opportunities that will be created by investing to rebalance the global economy to a net zero future. It's estimated that the climate transition will offer five to six trillion US dollars in financing opportunities every single year between now and 2050. So today we'll be discussing the imperative and approaches around shaping a low carbon future with two senior leaders in finance. Charles Zemont, the CEO of CDPQ, and Guy Cormier, the CEO of Desjardins. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen, and welcome. Thank Bienvenue. you. <laughs> so I'd like to start off by asking you both a question. What are the main impacts of climate change on your organizations, and how are you responding to them? Well, I go ahead, Shaul, first, or? I can start if you want, uh, Guy. And, and just before I start, let me just say a few words of intro in French. I want to say merci à Nelly Gilbert pour la présentation. Merci aux organisateurs. Merci à Finance Montréal, qui est un partenaire de longue date. Puis je tiens à remercier Guy d'être là avec moi, Guy, qui est à la tête d'une organisation très importante uh, ici au Québec et à travers le Canada. Well, if I sort of look at your question, uh, Nelly, let me just answer the first part, which is the impact of climate change to the industry and, and, and our business. And then I'll talk about how we at CAIS are responding to it. And if I think about the impact of climate change, I mean, they've been, you know, no less than transformative. Uh, you look a couple of years back, you know, let's face it, few had climate change, climate risk at the top of their top of their list. And as an investor, when you talk to company CEOs, uh, back then, it was something nice to talk about as you wrapped up the meeting, but it was kind of perceived as a distant future. Today, everything has kind of really changed in the past 48 months or so. It's a mainstream issue. The mere fact we're talking about it now, there's a lot of panels, uh, is a reflection of that. And meetings with CEOs now, they tell me it often starts with that topic specifically. So I think it's important as an industry not to lose sight of the um, the velocity with which climate the climate factor brought change uh, to our sector. It's probably perhaps unprecedented in our industry. Now, if you look as to how we've responded to this change uh, at CDPQ, two things I'll talk about. Let, let's just take maybe a step back as to how we, where we came from three, four years ago, and then I'll talk about how we're responding today. So we kind of trailblazed, we think, uh, in 2017 when we launched that, that new climate strategy with you know, ambitious targets back then. So we had essentially two big targets, reducing carbon intensity of the entire portfolio by 25% by 2025, and increase our green assets, what we call our green assets, our zero emission assets by 80% as well by 2025. We've also implemented uh, annual carbon budgets in every asset class. We started measuring every dollar invested in terms of its carbon intensity and last but not least, Nelly, I, I like to point this out, we've integrated those targets into our uh, variable compensation. And as far as I know, we're the only large institutional investor or one of the few in the world to have done so. So for me, how we change our modus operandi on a daily basis and even our culture back then to reach these targets is almost as important as the targets themselves. And the results were quite conclusive. I mean, we're, we're happy we exceeded those targets in only three years. So we reduced carbon intensity 
uh, by 38%. So today we're at 38% reduction. And we've actually doubled our green assets to 38 billion. So this is what we've done so far. But if I just sort of conclude where, how we're responding today, needless to say, yes, we're proud of what we've achieved. But I think we need to really accelerate the pace today, probably explore new ways to address climate change. Why? Because the climate has worsened exponentially since then. So that's why last week uh, I've announced CDPQ's new climate strategy, which is kind of based on four pillars, which I'll just describe very briefly. The first two are kind of easy because we just increase our ambition on existing targets that we have. So what does that mean? So we'll triple our green assets by 2025. And we're going to reduce the carbon intensity to 60% by 2030. So that is kind of renewing the ambition on what we already have. But to finish off on the last two pillars before I conclude, those green targets, as I call them, they're, they're great, they're crucial, but they're probably what we feel not enough to kind of bend the curve on global warming. So the third pillar will be that we're going to be addressing carbon emission at its roots. So to us, that's the next step. And that, that is the highest emitting sectors. So what are we going to do with that third pillar? We're going to launch a 10 billion transition envelope to decarbonate the large industries that we feel are really essential to build a carbon neutral future. In fact, we're going to go where we can really move the needle. And companies will invest and will have specific criteria. Now, it's important to say that they'll need to have a transition plan, uh, transparent reporting, and an independent external certification. And last but not least, you know, we feel that you know, long-term investment is kind of our, our DNA at the case. And so if there's one sector we feel there's a lot of uncertainty right now, it's oil. So our fourth pillar is you know, we're going to commit to exiting from oil production, oil production by the end of 2022. That represents give or take 1% of our assets. So we've started declining many years ago. We'll complete the exit, and our goal there is to stop contributing to the increase of oil supply or to new oil pipeline projects. Now, that being said, I, I like to underscore that our capital remains available. It'll remain available to invest in transition platform from any industries. So this is how we're sort of tackling it right now going forward. Wow, that's exciting. La Caisse has always been in the lead, and now you're raising the ambition. Congratulations. Yeah, trying to. Thank you. And, and Guy, how would, how would you respond to this question about the main impacts of climate change at Desjardins and how you're responding to them? Oui, merci Nelly. Bonjour à toutes et à tous. Good morning, everyone. Bonjour encore à toi, Charles. Hello, Mrs. Gilbert. And thank you very much to the UNEPFI for inviting me today. Quelques mots en français aussi. Merci, bravo à Finance Montréal pour l'organisation de cette toute première édition du Sommet de la Finance Durable. Je souhaite ardemment que ce premier rendez-vous devienne vraiment un incontournable qui marquera l'engagement du monde de la finance contre la lutte au changement climatique et à la protection de l'environnement. Il est assez clair que comme investisseurs, comme détenteurs de capital, nous devons jouer un rôle de plus en plus grand. Nous devons favoriser absolument des projets qui font partie de la solution. On doit on doit pénaliser des projets qui font partie du problème et on doit absolument s'assurer de pencher du bon côté de l'histoire dans le dossier des changements climatiques. Et au Mouvement des Jardins, nous croyons le fermement à cette responsabilité du secteur financier. 
Comme coopérative, nous recherchons depuis notre fondation le bénéfice à long terme. On recherche, on croit que le capital doit être au service des personnes et des collectivités et on travaille à protéger les générations futures. It's clear that Canadians want their financial institutions to include the fight against climate change in their values and also in their priorities. Companies in uh, all sectors can no longer ignore climate change and environmental issues from our perspective. And financial institutions must make their investments conditional on improving the environmental performance of all the companies. And by doing so, financial, financial institutions do not forfeit necessarily performance. On the contrary, they ensure the long-term performance of their companies and the society. And uh, Desjardins announced this past Earth Day uh, our ambition action plan uh, regarding net zero emission by 2040. So we were really clear on what we want to achieve. First, developing new financial products for our members, for our customer, businesses in particular, individual. Support key projects in renewable energy, energy efficiency and electric transport. And third, helping our suppliers, our members and our clients to reduce their own emissions. So we'll be part of our action plan too. Our short-term targets will be boosting um, the share allocated to renewable in its lending to energy corporation from 24% to 35% by 2025. We want to build a 2 billion investment portfolio in renewable energy infrastructure. It's an increase of 66% compared to uh, 2020. And we will provide support to really five projects that we're working on right now, developing projects to convert organic waste, largely from agriculture, to renewable energy, biomethanization. So it's really a quick example of what we want to accomplish. Back in 2017, we announced and we committed to integrate ESG criteria into all of our business decisions in all of our business sectors. And today, there's nearly $111 billion that are in assets that are subject to positive or negative filters uh, based on environmental, social, or governance criteria. And we will continue to collaborate with our peers like CDPQ and many participants at this summit. And we will continue also to seek and support partnerships with governments, with universities, and with research institutes, just so we can really achieve our uh, collective climate objectives. You know, it's really clear in my mind that the, the world of finance has understood the urgency of the situation, but it must now act more decisively to change the economy. We have to change the way we produce goods from the supply to the recycling and that's somewhere that we want to invest more time and energy to the recycling we have to change the investment criteria in our portfolios we must change also the way we measure profits and losses by considering the real costs that implies considering the environmental costs in the balance 
And we have to change the culture of the relationship between shareholders and the management. At all these stages, the world of finance has a role to play. In many aspects, the change has already begun. But at all these stages, the world of finance can no longer act alone. We have spent too much time in the starting blocks wondering which government, which bank, or which corporation should go first. Now we must run together and we need concrete, decisive, and impactful action like the CDBQ, like Desjardins, and many other financial institutions. We must have the imagination to create a true green and circular economy. This concept of circular economy is so important for us at Desjardins. And we must find a way to break the link between more growth and more resources. Human development should no longer be at the expense of the environment. And this will not happen without effort or without action plan, because if we want to produce a better quality of life for everyone, we must act in this way. And it's, it's the only responsible way to act in the best interest of the future generation, Nelly. Thank you. Thank you for these thoughts and for your leadership. It's, it's wonderful to hear how these actions at Desjardins are also supported by your client demand. It says a lot. Um, I wonder, staying with Yugi, how do you see the pathway for financial institutions to rethink the traditional approach to finance, as you've already been describing, and to do this in a way that avoids greenwashing? Well, we've been handed an opportunity to make some changes. That's how we feel. Changes in how we operate and how we impact the environment. Changes in how we invest our money responsibly. Changes to how we support our communities. And at Desjardins Group, we're always thinking about the change we can make to better the well-being of people and communities. And our cooperative values since 120 years are guided by the strong belief that economic development should always drive social progress. So it has to be rooted in our values and our priorities. And financial institutions should align with science-based approaches and frameworks to measure their performance and drive effective progress. So this concept of alignment with science-based approaches is from my perspective key in the next few years. You know, our society has, has passed the time of vague promises of actions or green, green marketing or greenwashing, like you just said in your question. Our members, our clients, our employees have great expectations on our level of transparency. And also they expect from us long-term ambitious plan with real short-term and mid-term targets. And they will demand, and this will demand clearly um, diligent, diligent tracking and communication. And we will be really clear on what we want to finance and what we don't want to finance. Uh, in addition, the financial sector and the rest of the, the business sector in Canada need to have a clear and shared taxonomy to reach the objectives of a Paris Agreement. 
this is still, still something that we have to, to work on to have uh, the, the answers that, that, we're, that we're looking at. Desjardins as a financial group, financial cooperative has been uh, an agent of change for more than 30 years in the financial sector in Canada. We were the first Canadian financial institution to sign the principle for responsible banking. Our position on coal has been recognized as one of the most robust around the globe. And since last year, we launched 17 Societera fund, mutual funds, ETFs, that are 100 free of oil production and pipeline holdings. So, so from our perspective, it's clear that we need to more innovation, tools, and expertise if we want to create a key international framework. Um, and today, we're really proud. I'm really proud to announce that Desjardins is the first financial institution in Canada to sign the business ambition for 1.5 degrees the Science-Based Targets Initiative and the United National Global Compact. This is an, an example of, of, of what we want to try to achieve with these new standards. And through this commitment, we are solidifying from our perspective our support to long-term climate change and also integrated approach, approach in all of our business lines of activities and based on science interim targets that will be validated by, by global expert too. So as we, as we continue to move forward in the implementation of, of our, our action plan, Desjardins will, will continue to be transparent, communication, but at the same time, we must continue to listen to our members, our clients, our employees, and the different stakeholders that we are working with. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for this rich answer. Both of you have discussed not only your long-term goals for net zero, but also the short and midterm targets that you're committing to. And this seems very important. Um, at the David Rockefeller Fund, where I chair the investment committee, we are committing to decarbonizing our portfolio by another 25% uh, by 2025. And this commitment is, as you discussed, underpinned by a focus on engagement with our portfolio companies, our external asset managers, and on collaboration and communication with our peers, like both of you. We are also committing 10% of our investments to investing in private market solutions that will drive the climate transition within the next five years. Um, Charles, you talked a little bit about the interim targets that you have set and now reset at CDPQ. How do you see this playing out within your organization and in North America more broadly? Hey, thank you, Nelly, and uh, congratulations on, on, on all those uh, great, uh, great commitments uh, and actions. Let me just talk maybe for one minute on those short to midterm targets, Nelly, because I think they are really really important because everyone kind of agrees on the common destination. I mean, it's carbon neutrality by 2050. Generally speaking, the consensus is there a little bit earlier. But honestly, and, and I, I don't mind saying that, I mean, the, setting the North Star is actually sometimes the easy part. Um, and so short to midterm targets to me are the essential ingredient, and there's kind of no way around it. Um, 
I'm sure everybody on 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 uh, in the audience will actually know the old saying: uh, "Vision without execution is hallucination." So midterm targets actually provide a measure of progress and effectiveness. We all know what gets measured gets done. And it also provides the ability to correct course of action because it's very difficult to predict over 40, 50 years. And let's not forget um, those short to midterm targets, I find, can really, really mobilize people. As, as you start having you know, success begets success, as we say. So if you ask me in our own organization, uh, Nelly, Without our 2025 targets that we've launched back in 2017, there's no way we reach our, our current momentum and get to where we are today in, in 2021 with the ability to reset as we've done today. And I would, you know, I would even go as far as saying that I, I consider short to midterm targets to be, to be part of my future trade duty as CEO. Because otherwise, let's face it, I can promise whatever you want for 2050, I'll be far gone by then. So I think there's that notion of responsibility to leave the organization in good shape for whoever succeeds in that road to, uh, to carbon neutrality. And those short to midterm targets I find also have a really good advantage, Neil, is that they provide transparency, which is kind of essential to establish credibility with, uh, with the various stakeholders and, and a condition to make sure that, A, people uh, enthusiastically get on board with the program and also to preserve the trust, as I said, of those stakeholders. So that is important because otherwise, how can they actually measure your progress and understand your situation, the context as, as you move along? Now, how this will play out in, in North America, the second part of your question and, and at case, well, I'm kind of encouraged, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist that you know we already see a lot more and more interim targets by investors. Um, and I think it has to do with the fact, well, stakeholders expect uh, actions, as, as Guy said, given the urgency of the situation. And hopefully COP26 is, is around the corner. That gives us a window of opportunity uh, to converge collectively. So let's not miss on that one. As to how it played out at the case at CDPQ, um, so in 2017, as I said, we've set out those short to midterm targets. And the, the way I like to spin it or present it, Nelly, is we've turned these 2017 targets from constraints back then to, to opportunities in 2021. And that sort of became part of our DNA in the organization. I, I'd like to say uh, humbly that it's kind of a signature of organization that we, that we run. And so we feel it gives us really advantages. A, we actually get inbound calls given those short to midterm targets are known. It gives us inbound, call, inbound calls on opportunities, investment opportunities, we may not have the chance to see otherwise. So people think about us as being interested in that, in the, in that space, in those sector. And I'd like to point out in, in a day and age of where you know, there's war on talent, it's an amazing recruiting and retention tool, to be honest with you, when people actually see that we endorse that, that, uh, that positioning. So today, as we said, we, we renew the ambition, we go beyond what's being done in the industry, and we try to set targets, different targets on different horizons. So exiting oil production, 2022, green assets, 2025, carbon intensity, 2030. And to me, just to, to finish up on that, the best indicator of success as a CEO is when I actually see the teams underneath in the various asset class actually pushing the organization to be bold while at the same time being pragmatic. Because then I know we push ourselves 
for the ambition while making sure the targets are credible. And so, you know, the employees actually endorse that and, and, and they know the path. And that gives me, I think, a sense of comfort that we're going to succeed from an execution, an execution standpoint. Mm. I really appreciate what you're saying about the use of interim targets as a tool for communications internally and externally motivating a variety of different kinds of stakeholders. Um, exactly. Next, I'd like to ask you both a question that's specifically about the Canadian perspective. Who are the key stakeholders who, that need to be engaged for the systemic change that's needed in Canada? Especially when it comes to the sensitive topics of transitioning beyond fossil fuels, which you've both already mentioned, and while doing this in a way that also addresses social justice, equity, and environmental protection. Are you um, go ahead, Chow, or Guy, you like no, go, go ahead, Guy. Go ahead. Okay. okay well, well, uh, I, I think it's quite clear that the fight against climate change requires a, a collective response. Uh, and, and one that is more, more synchronized than as the best, the best way we can. So we need the private sector, the public sector, and the civil society to really work together, like we did with the pandemic and like we did with the pan, like we're still doing with COVID-19. So if, if one of us is moving faster and I, and, I, and I look at all the decisions that the CDPQ and Shell just announced, and honestly, it's, it's quite amazing because they're still pushing and they still send a signal like we did the Desjardins. So the other should follow too, I'm sure, and they will look at what they can do and what they can accomplish. So, so we need a strong impact uh, if we want uh, the result that we want to achieve. And I feel and I'm convinced that cooperation will be key to tackle all these challenges. Um, for the next generation. It's not just one player who can fix everything. We all have also a responsibility to raise awareness on the consequences of climate change if we want to be able to put forward certain regulations or measures uh, favoring transition to a, a low carbon economy. So, Citizens and customers must continue to demand changes and, and ask for financial products that we can offer them, that we offer them for many, many years. And we see that they want these kind of uh, personal investment products. Companies must be ready to offer also solutions to social and environmental issues. And governments do not carry the full, carry the full potential uh, or the full responsibility of addressing social and, and, and environmental issues. I think it's a collective response. And um, we've seen that the last few decades showed that there's some collateral damage to, to the, the kind of capitalism that we have seen in the last 40 years. So um, we must be at Desjardins and all players an agent of change. And like, like Charles said, our employees, our members and clients are, are putting pressure on us. And for our employees, it's a purpose when they look at a company, at the management, at the, the board of directors, that they, they look at us and they see that we want to make a change or we want to be an agent of change pragmatically and in a transition mindset where we help businesses 
that have to, to change their operations. And at the same time, we recognize the one that are, are already there or are working in this direction. So I, I firmly believe that we, 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 we have made progress, but we must continue to make more progress in this shared prosperity concept that is so important to be more equitable and inclusive in all of our activities. Thank you. Yeah. Listen, I, I'm, I'm happy to sort of, you know, compliment a little bit. I, I echo what uh, Guy is, is uh, saying, and I mean, it's everyone is a stakeholder for something that's a you know, a systemic or systematic change. Uh, it's everyone's business uh, when it has to do with climate change. You know, if I look at our organization, you know, climate is not just uh, the ESG's team's responsibility. It's everyone, uh, everyone. And so the same mindset, I think, would sort of structure my, my answer in terms of um, uh, society. Investors, if you look at the various stakeholders, investors need to support a transition with their capital. Companies need to actually translate their strategy and conviction into actions to de-risk their balance sheet. Um, governments, governments need to implement policy that will encourage the right behaviors and support organizations that are already in, um, and, and serious about transition. And civil society itself needs to probably more closely engage as well with private actors to strengthen the collaboration and foster change. And I'd even say in the end, we're all individuals. And so um, we got to think in making the right choice uh, as consumers to influence companies and, and provide and have an incentive to offer greener products. So kind of said differently, uh, Anil, the way I see it is we kind of all need to rely on each other and build from the strength of the various actors in the ecosystem. Otherwise, what's going to happen, I fear, if we don't do that is, this won't feel like a transition. It, it'll create a precipitated reaction if we wait too long. And needless to say, then the cost will be way too high um, and, and it'll, we'll leave some people behind. Now, as to how we engage beyond fossil fuels, uh, you talked about that. Now, needless to say, the transition is, is not only limited to the climate, the climate dimension. And um, and you talked about you know equity, social justice. The reality is there's an infinite number of issues that you can actually tackle as an organization. You know diversity, inclusion is often mentioned, uh, human rights, safety, things like that. But what I'd like to point out is in my the privilege I have in talking with a lot of board members, um, uh, they're kind of wondering sometimes how to deal with the S or the G. If I can just do a little just a parenthesis on this. And the reason is they don't know where to go. They have a lot of messages coming left and right. And sometimes they either stall, which leads to anxiety, or they run in every direction, which, which leads to a dilution of their, their brand and effort, some confusion. What I try to tell them uh, each time, and this may not apply to everybody, is pick, pick the one or two most relevant issues to your organization. The one that if you actually, if you fumbled on it, uh, or it didn't meet the standard, it would actually impair your your social license to operate and put all your efforts in there and focus on bringing early results. Then you can always focus on the next ones. Doesn't mean you ignore the rest. And so as, if I take an example, you ask for case, what have we done beyond fossil fuel? Well, we said, okay, who are we? Well, we're investors. What will we pick there in terms of social and uh, justice and fair equity and all that? I mean, well, well we decided to pick uh, fair taxation at a global level 
and the use of low tax jurisdiction as something we felt was important to the communities. So we influenced our partners whenever we could to establish structures outside of these jurisdiction. And the result is we've managed to, with about 30 companies in the last three years, uh, bring change for about you know, a total value of about 9 billion. So what I say is pick two, three issues early on. If you're a transportation company, maybe it's safety. There's a lot of different examples. And then doesn't mean you ignore the rest, but you build early result on the track record and then credibility kicks in and people get on board with the program. Hmm. Very interesting, thank you. I'd also like to share the US perspective on this where our policymakers are actually recognizing the importance of understanding that our climate goals are not extricable from our social goals. And so we have to find ways to advance them both at the same time to be successful. So you'll see that um, here in the US, uh, the government has set up a Council on Environmental Justice that's focused on advancing something called the Justice 40 Initiative, which intends that 40% of all of the benefits from the climate investments that are going to be made by the government will go to our most vulnerable communities. And so finding ways to push our climate investment goals along with our social investment goals feels like a way to really move the needle. Um, next, I'd like to ask you both how you see the business opportunities for financial institutions in leading the climate transition. Personally, as I said earlier, I'm really inspired by the scale of innovation that we'll need to put forward in the real economy because of climate change. Uh, the climate revolution is likely to be much larger in economic scale than the earlier industrial revolution or the digital information revolution. And I think this is gonna create a lot of positive opportunities. So um, as I mentioned at the David Rockefeller Fund, as part of our 2025 interim target, we've made a 10% commitment to really lean in to financing the companies that are uh, driving the climate transition and investing in the innovation that we need. And we think that we'll find positive return opportunities for our fund in doing that. Um, in the final month leading to COP, what would each of you tell your fellow leaders in the industry in order to move the needle on the business opportunities um, from leading in the climate transition? Ahead, Do you wanna go first, Key? Go, go ahead, Guy. Well, I, I think uh, I think we're all convinced uh, that uh, climate change is an issue, uh, but at the same time, there's so so many opportunities. We just discussed it. Um, it's sure that when you look at an organization like Desjardins, uh, we've been involved in communities for so many times. We have been founded uh, at that time. It wasn't ESG criteria because of social issues in Quebec. And uh, that's why our founder decided that it was so important to have a financial institution for French Canadian at that time. Now, uh, Quebecois, Quebecois, and now over the world. So I, I think we have to continue to innovate and look at all these issues in a way where it will push us forward uh, on the agenda and the impact on the environment. Uh, as an example, at Desjardins right now, we're working really, really hard with different partners uh, to develop and test solutions that can support a more circular economy. So uh, we're taking every opportunity to review how we operate 
and how we invest to really reduce our footprint and help the transition to low carbon economy. So we're therefore, we, we announced a 2 million partnership with uh, Ecole de Technologie Supérieure in Montreal to, to, to launch two laborator laboratories uh, that are set up for construction and also plastic industry. And look in these two industries, is there some innovation that we can create to really circular uh, the waste of one production and it's the entrant uh, or the, 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 the products that will launch another production. So all this concept of circular economy where we reduce waste and we promote uh, a use of, of, of goods and production that is, um, that is more, uh, let's put it this way, long-term perspective and less impact on the environment. Um, there's probably three things that I would like to share really quickly uh, with all the people that are with us is how, how can we create a sense of urgency? So we've seen with the pandemic that we have been able to be resilient and that we can act quickly and efficiently. So how can we create this sense of urgency in our own organization to, to be as fast as we have, have been during the pandemic? There's, I like to say that there's no vaccine. There's no vaccine for climate change and there's no plan B. So it's probably the greatest challenge of our, our time. So we have to reflect this urgency in our decisions and in our discussion. The second aspect is commitment, strong commitment. Who do we invest with? Uh, what kind of investment? Uh, what kind of product we wanna work with? So be really committed in our day-to-day -day businesses. That, I like what Charles just said about, yes, the long-term perspective, but also just the short-term goals that we put as targets. I think it's important to go more than just slogan, but really short-term targets and measure it months after months. And the third aspect for me is collaboration. We won't fix all these issues if we work alone. Uh, we really have to work in a transition that is just for everyone. So we have to work on the environment challenges, but at the same time, the social challenges and collaborate together. And how can we influence each other to try to find solutions on this long-term perspective? So this transition has to be fair um, and must benefit to all. So that would be the, 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 the few messages that I would like to share to, to everyone. Ishal? I mean, just, just to maybe uh, add a little bit to what uh, Guy said, which I agree with. I mean, we like to sort of uh, summarize our approach, in elite, uh, you know, like um, as constructive capital. And constructive capital at case actually means the following. It's combining performance with progress. And there's a lot of thinking behind that. Performance goes back to returns, because let's face it, we represent 6 million Quebecers. They need to have a pension at the other end of that. So we can't avoid that. Means we have to be diversified. Means we have to be invested across the economy. The second, the second part progress is looking beyond financial returns, the sustainability aspect of it. And so we'll have to be very mindful as organizations because um, 
you can't supersede a green economy on top of a brown economy and hope that things will magically get to where we need to be. When you run the math, and we took that same commitment towards carbon neutrality by 2050, you just can't add green assets. It just doesn't add up. And so it'll take a lot of courage collectively, a lot of innovation, a lot of understanding that reducing the carbon intensity of some of those highest emitting sectors is key. There's no way, absolutely no way around it. But if you ask me, that is also important to put in perspective, because if you look at our total portfolio, the 400 billion nearly, I said about, you know, 10, 11% of our um, assets would be green or zero emission assets. Here's the issue, ransom of glory a little bit. 80% of our total assets are zero to low emission assets. So what does that mean? In order to continue moving the needle, you have to go into the highest emitting sectors. But if we take the first class or best in class in an industry, doesn't trade as well, you invest, help it transition, the cost of capital will go down. It'll be in a better position to solve its own problems. It'll increase the valuation. It's even a better risk reward proposition for our depositors. On top of the fact, you may have a better, bigger delta of improvement in the transition of the real economy. So we have to start looking at it from that perspective as well and look at the green assets. So both actually need to happen at the same time. And, and so from that perspective, it's very important. Otherwise, what's gonna happen? We've talked about greenwashing. If there's only legislation on public companies um, to be clean, well, you might end up with what we call brown spinning. And so public companies will dispose of uh, less clean assets and put them maybe into hands of, of owners that don't have the same objectives that we have or Guy has or others here around and on the line. So we might actually look and say a couple of years down the road, well, public companies look pretty neat now or clean. Fact matter is how come we have as more, if not more greenhouse gas emissions by then. So we really have to be careful. This is not a, a zero sum game in the end. Mm -hmm. It's great to hear a, a lot of leadership on these greater green strategies um, coming from uh, Canadian leaders as well as others. Um, in terms of final remarks, this is a quick 30 second final round. Uh, both of your organizations have signed the statement by the Quebec Financial Center for Sustainable Finance. Concretely, what does this change for you and what are your targets? Guy? Well, uh, really proud to stand with the other stakeholders, the Quebec financial sector to sign this declaration. Concretely for Desjardins, we will provide a sustainable finance training to the vast majority of our 52,000 employees in Canada by the end of 2023. Uh, we will support more transparency and reporting in sustainable finance. We will also promote the development of the Montreal sustainable finance sector through our network of over 4,000 Desjardins advisors and professionals in our case network in all of our branches. And we will continue to integrate the ESG factors into all of our operations. So these, um, these commitments combined with our ambitious action plan uh, 2040 uh, will, will really help us and the society uh, to achieve the targets that we want to achieve. Thanks. And Charles? 
Well, first and foremost, Nelly, I'd like to uh, congratulate, acknowledge the great work done by Finance Montréal, obviously, in, in coming up with, uh, you know, throughout the years, and in coming up with that statement, it's actually a, a, a proof of their leadership of having the, uh, the entire ecosystem rally behind it. Um, what we'll do at the case, I mean, we heard our companies, they want to know more, work closer with us on sustainability. And so in the context of that statement, uh, I'm happy to announce that case will actually commit formally to offer explicit support and training to companies uh, in Quebec and in our portfolio. Uh, we'll be there for those who are actually uh, devoted to improving their employees' skill on that, on that specific matter, on ESG matters, on climate, on disclosure. And, and honestly, as a global leader in our sector, we're actually convinced um, this is a win-win. A uh, win for our companies, a win for us as investors, a win for communities. And so it's in our own interest and, 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 and that of our 6 million plus depositors. So we'll continue working extremely hard and announce a formal engagement to work with boards and employees and companies to really get up to the level we need to be collectively and, and, and reach our, our targets collectively. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being here today and for such a rich discussion and all of the ambition that you're putting forward. It's really leaders like you and your organizations that reflect the type of action that is specifically needed today all around the world both as COP26 quickly approaches and also well beyond that global event. You know, my overarching sense is that one of the best ways for investors like us to manage climate risk in our portfolios is to actually become part of seeking to move the needle on climate change in the real world. And by raising our voices and sharing ideas and inspirations in gatherings like this one today is one way for us to do that. So thank you again for coming together here and making this contribution. Merci. Et au Merci, Nelly. Merci, Guy. Merci, Nelly. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye.